Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of Learning, Lifting, Leading, Social Equity Forum by Black and Brown Girls and Women. My name is Jen Grimmett, and with us today is Angelicia Simmons, founder of the Fannie Lou Hamer Institute located in Wake County, North Carolina, speaking on the topic of school to prison pipeline. Welcome, Angelicia. Thank you for having me, Jen. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Could could you tell our audience a little bit about the work that you do and what brings you with us today? Sure. Um, I founded the Fannie Lou Hamer Institute of Advocacy and Social Action in October of 2014 um, and named it after the late, great Fannie Lou Hamer, who's a civil rights activist and voting rights activist in Mississippi. Um, I discovered her probably during my college years and wondered why I never heard about her, why I did not know who she was, and began to study her and kind of dropped off a little bit. But then when I became an adult, I rediscovered her and began to study her work and her words. Um, So I wanted to show um, just kind of deference to her and putting her name and including her name on it and spoke with uh, one of her daughters and she said she was fine with it. And so I wanted to be able to work with black women and black girls, primarily starting with black girls. So right now we work specifically with black girls through our Fannie Lou Lou Girls initiative. We work with them through our rites of passage, and we also work with them through a diversionary program in response to a school push-out and over-criminalization that's going on of black girls in our educational system. And so that is my work, really teaching them who they are, uh, conflict resolution, and just working with giving them a safe space where they can talk freely and be who they are. And so that's what my work primarily is right now. We do have a vision of expanding to include Uh, the needs of black women as well. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. So, you know, to kind of get us started, I was wondering if you could define for our audience, what is the school to prison pipeline? Um, So the school to prison pipeline, the technical definition of the school to prison pipeline as defined by the ACL, the American Civil Liberties Union, says that it refers that the school to prison pipeline refers to policies and practices that push school children, notably at risk children out of classrooms and into the juvenile and criminal justice systems. But here at Fannie Lou's Girls, you know, to be clear, We believe that the school-to-prison pipeline is just another branch of the tree of white supremacy that ensures the continuation of the policing of black bodies, the black bodies of our young people that disproportionately tend to minors and young adults um, with backgrounds that are at risk and that it leads to incarceration. And we believe education over incarceration. And this is what is inhibiting the education of our girls, this school to prison pipeline. And so that is what our definition is. Great. You know, kind of based on the work that you've done When do you think that it first really became part of the classroom narrative? I really believe, Jen, that it started probably in 1994 with the Gun-Free Schools Act. Um, When 
the zero tolerance policy started. It, it started there mm-hmm. um, to cut down, they say, on the bringing of weapons to schools and to um, stop the drug use and gang violence and things like that. And so I believe that we saw the, the embryo of um, the school to prison pipeline then thinking after the Columbine High School massacre, thinking that that would quell some of the weaponry that's coming. But unfortunately, what it seems to appear, well, what seems to be happening is that uh, some other things are being swept into these zero tolerance Mm -hmm. policies. Well, and that's what's really uh, hitting black girls. Going off of that, like, what are some of the cultural impacts when students of color have first contact with the criminal justice system at such a young age? Oh, wow. I'm glad you asked that. You know, I just, uh, last summer, I read a book um, called Becoming Miss Burton. Mm-hmm. And it's about Sarah Burton, who spent um, time in prison, in and out of prison, like 16 years. And she can she can tie her prison activity to the first time she got suspended. Um, Oh, wow. She got two weeks, and it was because of a dress code. She was from a a very impoverished area in California. Her mother could not afford new clothes, so she had to wear what she had been wearing. But, of course, you grow, your body changes, and so your clothes will fit differently. Well, she was suspended for two weeks, and she said it was at that time that she learned how to do drugs. When she was suspended and hit the street, she said she learned how to do drugs, she learned how to get with boys, she learned how to become mortifying. So those few days out of school created an angst when she went back. So she had to kind of reinvent herself when she went back, readjust herself. She said because it was hard, because everything she learned in the street. And that's why um, the Institute is here, because we want to kind of be a buffer between the street and the school so that there is not a change when they go back to school. Um, And so I believe that cultural impact that changes is, is when we hit the street, um, what we're introduced to, mm-hmm. um, especially if you come from an impoverished community, what you're going to be introduced to is going to be uh, so different that it's going to be so hard to readjust when you come back to school. Right. And, you know, how does that affect, you know, kind of broadening that a bit? Like, how does that immediate impact on that child branch out to impacting whole families oh well so you know when they what happens what miss burton was saying is i she got she became more defiant so when she went back into schools she kind of probably started pushing back the teachers which led to um either her getting suspended again or just finally dropping out of school well we know that when we educate a woman we educate a nation and so when this leads black girls to drop out of school it economically impacts specifically that community, but it hits us all mm-hmm. because we end up having to take care, uh, and that's fine. But we, but we, if we can, if we know how to stop it, then let's stop it. But I think it affects us all because we economically have to share in what has happened prematurely uh, or before she dropped out of school, um, and so it 
it, there are just serious ramifications economically to that community and even to herself, of course, but mm-hmm. definitely to her community right. and her children that we are sure she will have. One of the, the pieces that kind of came up for me um, when I was doing a little research on the topic is, so there was a statement made by the NAACP that the school-to-prison pipeline is one of the most urgent challenges in education today. And, you know, as I had to do a quick check-in, you know, a privilege check on myself because I was like, wow. So, like, what, in your opinion, are some factors that have mobilized this determination into a state of urgency? Um, I think one is... It's it's hitting our babies now. So, um, I let's let's talk about the study from. I hope that the urgency is. I know I'm like jumping around here, but I hope the <laughs> urgency is because it is because it's attacking our babies now that are entering this whole mass incarceration, hyper incarceration thing. That is why there's this boom from the juvenile system that's kind of fueling mass incarceration. But if we look at the study that was done by Georgetown, um, that they just put out last year, um, the erasure of black childhood or black girls' childhood, and we see how black children normally are adultified. You know, that's a new term called adultification where black children can't be children. So when we act up, it's criminalized. Mm -hmm. And so perhaps that's why there's an urgency there, too, because now this mass incarceration is affecting our children because our children can't even be children. Right. They are being criminalized for behavior that white children get um, a pass for. So perhaps that's why there's an urgency. And that's why there's an urgency on the part of the Fannie Lou Hamer Institute to address um, this prison, the school to prison pipeline. Yeah. So could you speak a little a little bit more about school disciplinary policies? And, you know, you you touched on how, you know, there are such profound variances in outcomes for white children and children of color when they are being um, disciplined within the context of classroom um, behavior. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what in what are some additional disciplinary policies that are impacting the educational experiences of girls and women of color? Um, well, I think it's not in just the policies alone. I, of course, you have some of the um, vagueness in the policy language, like disruption of the class. Well, you know, what does that look like? Um, also, and then... The teacher is the main uh, vehicle that determines what the disruption of the class is. So, you know, how does that look to her and what perceptions is she bringing? Is she is she looking at this eight year old child as an adult? Because then her perception of this child is going to be quite different and she's going to deal with it differently. But also bringing in the, the SROs into the equation when you bring predominantly white men 
into the equation. And if you look historically, um, black women have never been treated as women. There was never a problem of, of, of us being body slammed or putting knees in our back. Mm-hmm. And so though, bringing those perceptions into it, then you see why you see little black girls being body slammed. Um, so it's not even just the policies that are doing it. It is more the carrying out of those policies and the perceptions that are being um brought to these policies to determine to meet them out. Um, and I think that's why there's such a discrepancy and disparity in the uh, numbers. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, as you were talking, it made me kind of think about Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy. And right. in that, he talks about, um, and this is kind of distilling down so much of the brilliance in the book, but cultural intelligence and you know, how the lack of cultural intelligence in the classroom, which is guided by predominantly white folks, is contributing to these advancing of stereotypes and extreme responses. What do you think Mm -hmm. about that? Oh, I think that's absolutely, absolutely correct. Um, and, and just to go back to that study at the Georgetown Law Center on poverty and inequity, um, the snapshot of the data that they, which will speak to what Stevenson is talking about, um, how bringing our, these perceptions into punishment um, um, and giving in the lack of cultural sensitivity in these perceptions, this just kind of speaks on that. What the, what the study found was that out of the 325 people that were a part of that study, that they found that black girls needed less nurturing. Black, they thought black girls needed less protection. Black girls needed less support. Black girls needed comforting list. And even five-year-old girls. Mm-hmm. This is what they thought of five-year-old girls. And so... To the cultural sensitivity, you know, I don't know if cultural sensitivity teaching uh, alone will be uh, what will help, mainly because, you know, how many years have we coexisted together as a people? So it's kind of like, you know, do you really want to get it or don't you? Mm -hmm. Um, You ought to know that it sets me off when you mispronounce my name. You ought to know that it sets me off when you ask me to do something like one of our girls, one of the teachers told her, uh, just pull your hair back in a ponytail. Take the hood off your head. Pull your hair back in the ponytail. Well, anybody knows as a black girl, you know, hair is an issue for us. Mm -hmm. And we can't just pull our hair back in a ponytail. Um, But, you know, you think that that would be known. Um, so I think that Stevenson is, is dead right about that cultural intelligence. I do think we still need to work on trying to uh, do cultural sensitivity training with, like you said, a system where primarily the leadership and the teachers, the, avenue, the teachers being the avenue by which a lot of this goes through, um, need to be trained on these things you can do instead of just turning it over to the principal all the time or turning it over to an SRO. Mm-hmm. Try to work it out this way. So, yes, we need more of that. I don't have hope and faith in a whole lot of that, but mm-hmm. we can at least try to keep using it. Agreed. Agreed. You have mentioned um, how young students of color are often 
stereotyped as disruptive because of the cadence or way of being that they need to communicate. Right. And, you know, the call and response. Given that the education system was built on conservative Anglo-Saxon Protestant frameworks, how are we to break, and this is a very big question, how are we to, to break out of that? You know, how are we, at, how can we at the individual levels disrupt that narrative? Um. I, you know, my parents went to, they never had the opportunity of going to integrated school systems. So they are products of segregated school systems. Um, but they had, when they came out and went to college, and they are both retired educators, and they first started teaching in the segregated school system, they were required to visit the student's home. And I know this is a whole lot because you're dealing with school systems now with like a boatload of children. You can't visit everybody's homes. Mm -hmm. But my mother said what that what that was able to do is you knew kind of the surroundings that that child came from. Um, you began to be relatable to that child. And sometimes th that's the reason why certain of us, period, you know, black, white, brown, get passes because if you know my family, well, I know her family, so I'm a, I'm just going to just kind of slap her on the wrist. Well, because they know me. Mm -hmm. um, there have to be relationships built between administration, teachers, and students, and not just the student. When students come and they're acting out of character or they're acting some kind of way, uh, I, I think that with, if we can teach people to say, okay, what happened at home? You know, getting more social workers in those classrooms or in the schools, mm -hmm. uh, providing money for social workers. So we can say, I'm going to send you to the social workers, social workers so you can sit with them for 5, 10, 15 minutes, however long. But if we can move away from this punitive punishment that we have and move to restorative, that might be one way of breaking out of this. Instead of just automatically saying, go to the principal's office or calling the SRO in. And mm -hmm. even with the SRO getting some type of training as well, so they don't charge these students. We've worked with girls who end up, they, they, they got in a fight. And they get suspended. But then their parents get a letter from a juvenile officer that says your child has been charged with simple assault. Mm -hmm. And so even when I sat with the young lady, with her juvenile counselor, she said, I'm not sure why they are giving her charge when the school has dealt with this by suspending her. So one way we can break out of this is by building relationships, by, by including people um, in the equation that can help deal with some of the trauma that these kids may be coming to school with mm -hmm. or just ex experience at home so they can learn. And if we could put education first, that our first mind is to educate these children, not to incarcerate them, then that might be a starting point. And that's a lot. Yes. <laughs> but I think it's a starting point. I, I agree. Um, you know, one thing that has struck me when I have visited schools, I mean elementary schools with babies, that, you know, they have armed guards, metal detectors, high fences. And, right. you know, it, it tells me 
that like that structure in itself is those students first contact with the judicial system right how in your opinion you know when you have that a visible structure that says we don't trust you and we are going to police you without any words said like what how does that increase the flow to from school to prison pipeline for girls of color particularly um well first of all i believe that most girls of colors color especially black girls feel like for the most part that no one is there to protect them so they come in already um in, which creates the callous and the hardcoreness on the outside that mm-hmm. they have to protect themselves and you have to remember jen that many of these children are coming from environments where they see the police rolling in their community all the time They've probably seen um, some stuff go on in their community. So when they come to the schools and they see the same thing, kind of the militarization of a school, mm-hmm. then they feel like, gosh, I'm going to have to protect myself here, too, because right. I know th- the perception is that I'm going to be wrong. And especially when you have all these videos, these viral videos now. So I think that increases it. And because... Much of the time, the people who carry out these punishments, like these officers, are so out of touch with how to deal with girls. These are girls. And if they bring their paradigm and perceptions of discipline and that these girls don't need protection, they don't need to be nurtured, then that's going to play out. It's going to increase the push out and the school to prison pipeline and the disciplinary opportunities for teachers to have to deal with because now they have to go in the classroom having to have dealt with uh, some man being rough with them mm-hmm. and so now the teacher's gonna have to deal with it so now you have to deal you, you're gonna have to deal with talking her down uh letting her know it's okay uh, let her know that and, and i'm not sure if that's even going to be done or if that is being done and so then that teacher has another opportunity to say just go to the principal's office then Mm-hmm. And then you start, you, that's the suspension. That's a write-up. Um, so, I, you know, I think that all of this, this whole policing at school, where they are to come and be safe and to be educated, it's just not a good look. It's not a good feel. We've got to find a way to get back to the minds of our children. And I believe community organizations can help out. Those mm-hmm. community organizations that can partner with schools and say, let me do this part because I know you're busy. So let us handle this so that these children don't walk in. These elementary school children don't walk in and see metal detectors. <laughs> right. Well, you know, as you were speaking, again, it got me thinking that, <laughs> you know, the that the fear that you have described by, you know, that the teachers are holding about what the explosive ways that outcomes could be reached and that media is, you know, kind of flaming the fire with that. Um, Mm -hmm. That it's almost like a contagion, right? That, you know, they, that teachers feel so disempowered to develop relationships with 
students of color because, you know, everything that they are implicitly taken in tells them that it's going to be dangerous. Right. And so they have to come at it hard. Right. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think that, you know, what you were speaking to about the restorative techniques could certainly help quell the contagion around that, you know? Right. Um, well, and you know, and I, I think that, you know, I was at a public, uh, at a policy meeting, board meeting, Wake County board uh, meeting, and, and I was listening, uh, was many of the board members were there, but the, one of the board members, a uh, uh, gentleman board member said, um, we've got to, you know, provide basically restorative measures here, you know, that disrupting the class, how many times, you know, you can't just send them to the principal's office the first time, second time. But there was another board member who just wanted to know, a female, who just wanted to know, well, how many times, how much does the teacher have to take? I mean, um, you could tell that this particular board member wanted this punitive uh, punishment here. They, they, they just wanted to be able to slap the book on the student. Uh, whereas one board member said, you know, main goal was let's find out what's going on at home. Mm-hmm. Is there a way that we can see, you know, if there's a connection here? Because I believe that what he was really saying is education over punishment here. Let's let's see how we can stop this cycle. Um, so when you have board members that may be for restorative and others who may be more punitive, you're going to have to work with that as well. Right. Uh, uh, and I don't know how to break that down because that's an individual type of thing. Um, but there ought to be this feel from teachers that education is important to everybody, the education of our children is important to everybody. We all benefit when our children are educated and not incarcerated. Mm-hmm. We've got to, that message has to be, and you know, it'd be great, Jen, if media even pumped that message across. Instead of using scare tactics, um, I think New York did this survey and found that crimes in the black community were reported more than crimes in white communities. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that crimes in black communities were going on more than white communities. It's just that in order to get more views, even on their online and live streaming um, news channels, they report more black crimes. And so why wouldn't that carry over to the classroom? Right. Why wouldn't that? And to the board members. So there's this, the media helps with, and I'm not trying to sound like Trump here, fake news, <laughs> saying, you know, it's like media helps kind of propagate this message of, you know, they don't know how to act. We have to police them because they don't know how to act. And so perhaps that is why teachers might have to get a hard stance and even board members have to have hard stances and create these harsh policies because they forget they're dealing with children. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, kind of rounding back to earlier points that we were kind of moving through, the lack of 
or the overpresence of white folks in leadership within these systems. Do you think that, you know, creating more space for black and brown voices could help change that narrative a bit? It could, Jen, if they have this goal in mind. See, you know, I'm not about just putting black faces at the table just to have black faces. Right. So um, who still align with uh, the majority. So we have to, yes, have spaces for more uh, black and brown administrators. Definitely. But let's add to that more black and brown administrators who understand restorative discipline versus punitive discipline Mm -hmm. Um, and may need training too because in this study of 325 adults that they interviewed um, for this study at Georgetown, there were some black and brown people in that study. So you're looking at black and brown people who also feel this way about black and brown people. Right. <laughs> that's, what, that's not what you want. But it is definitely an, an offshoot of living in these systems that we are also a part of it in some way. Uh, we can't escape all, all all of it all the time. So I do think it's important to have black and brown women in these spaces and black and brown men in these spaces. But I do think that they need to be vetted to ensure that they can bring some type of um, help to this cause of not always looking towards push out, school push out and over criminalization. All right. Yeah, no, thank you for that. So, you know, a couple of last questions to end cap our time together. Mm-hmm. One of the, the, the te- I was looking at your main website, and on the text on the top of your vision page reads, a world where black women and girls thrive. How can the pipeline be rerouted to help achieve this vision? Okay, so so the Fannie Lou Hamer Institute doesn't believe that the pipeline needs to be rerouted. It just needs to be um, torn up completely. <laughs> gotcha. That's not the pipeline we want. Um, so I believe that in order to create a crib to success pipeline, if you will, um, there has to be the fact that let black girls be black girls. Um Let's look at, let them be children. They do need protection. Provide them protection, which means, and that looks like no SROs are body slamming them. Um, they're not being picked up out of their seat. They don't have knees in their back. They are still girls. Let them be girls. They need nurturing, which means that you have mentorship and leadership programs for black and brown girls because you want them to lead. You want them to take that passion that they have because I don't think it's an attitude. I think it's passion. Uh, reroute that. Change that attitude to passion completely. Uh, change the, change our, our outlook on how we look at black and brown children. Let's look at them as being children and let's continue to operate under the umbrella of education before incarceration. And I believe that when we do that, then black women and girls will thrive economically, 
Mm -hmm. academically, socially, and everything else. When we really operate under the umbrella of I want you to succeed and education above incarceration. I'm not going to send you to the office just because you won't take the the hat off your head. I'm going to understand there might be a problem. So I'm going to offer you a brush or I'm offer you a comb and say, go to the bathroom and go with some, whatever it takes. Mm -hmm. I I believe that yes, it may take time um, to do stuff like that, but I children are worth it they are worth the time Mm -hmm. so i think that that is what i'm saying when i say that i believe that um we want a world where black women and girls thrive that we can be who we are and not be punished or or our actions aren't criminalized because of it yes thank you for sharing that what you are sharing is just such powerful messaging and You know, I'm so glad that, you know, you and I are having the opportunity to have this conversation so that we can, you know, send out this message to a broader audience that may not have been aware of the programming and the outreach that the Institute is doing. Um, It's wonderful. And I thank you for that. (laughs) So the last little piece that, you know, I want to finish up with is, you know, so the theme of this podcast is learning, lifting, leading social equity formed by black and brown girls and women, which is aligned with the 33rd Women's Conference that took place at Shaw University in Raleigh on October 20th. Mm -hmm. Could you make a few suggestions about how black and brown girls and women can be learning, lifting, and leading to bring about social equality. Equity. Sorry. Sure. Well, I like (laughs) equality, too. (laughs) I like that word, too. Okay. Equity as well. But um, I I definitely think that one way the onus is on us um, as black and brown girls and women is first of all to make sure we have seats at the table um, and that we know how that if we don't have seats at the table then we know how to pull up the folding chair um, as Shirley Chisholm said and make a seat at the table because it's so important because the work that black and brown women do and girls do is so important because You know, when we look at all the liberation movements, especially in the black community, they were normally started by black women. So we always are at the helm of the liberation of our people and in our community. So we should be at the table. We should have a voice. It is disappointing that when it comes to school pushout and overcriminalization, that black women and black girls are not always at the table when it is affecting us like the most. We need to be at the table. And that's how one way we can bring about um, social equity. Another way besides finding the seat at the table and pulling up the chair is also supporting each other, mentoring each other, making sure that no black girl goes without being mentored, that we find ways to mentor these young girls through these systems of oppression uh, of white supremacy and patriarchy, Mm -hmm. that we teach them how to do that, that we help even black women, as a, I need a mentor. I, I have a mentor. So having those mentorships, those people that can teach us how to lead, how to say it, how to you reinvent or re, uh, 
work our passion to make sure it comes across right, uh, that's very, very important. I think those are like the two main things on how we can bring about social equity. And we've got to keep talking about it. We have to keep talking about these systems of oppression and like you're doing, Jen, bringing it to light so people know that some of these issues are out here. Mm-hmm. I don't I'm not sure that people know that these issues are out here and how they're affecting us. I don't think that like I'm looking at the statistics of Wake County and their school suspensions. And for girls, we are 68 percent of the school suspensions in Wake County wow. when it comes to out, out of the girls. So in the girl population, we're 68 percent of all the girls who were suspended compared to 59% of black boys. But when you watch TV, who do you think is being suspended? Black boys, that's it. So these conversations have to be had so people know, and there has to be, there have to be a disaggregation of statistics so we can know this stuff. Because most of the time, it's us finding out by doing the work ourselves, which is fine, but it'd be great if these school systems would disaggregate these statistics so we know the work we need to be doing in the community as an organization. And I believe that when we do that, that we at least will have a good ground, a good footing to fight for social equity for our girls, for our black and brown girls in our communities. Well, thank you so much. Um, I have certainly enjoyed our time together, and I appreciate you sharing your vulnerabilities and expertise, and I'm excited to, you know, get the word out um, to a broader audience. So I appreciate you. (laughs) Thank you, Jen. I appreciate you for inviting me. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Learning, Lifting, Leading. Social Equity for and by Black and Brown Girls and Women, with our guest, Angelicia Simmons, founder of the Fannie Lou Hamer Institute, located in Wake County, North Carolina. Special thanks for this podcast go to Shaw University, Elon University, and the Raleigh Apex Branch of the NAACP for supporting this important work.